Welcome to a new episode of History, Fact, and Fiction. Each episode tackles a theme, and instead of debating what is fact and what is fiction in a historical event or a person's life, we're reviewing various adult fiction and nonfiction history books available in NC Cardinal, particularly bestsellers paired with not-so-well-known titles to see if they live up to the hype, and if so, what's so cool about them? If you've got a historical topic or person you'd like me to look at into the future episodes, just post it in the comments on our social media on Facebook or Twitter. This week, in honor of the 20th anniversary of September 11th that's coming up in a few days, I'm reviewing the following eight books. The Looming Tower, The Only Plane in the Sky, and The Day the World Came to Town. Those are nonfiction. Then In the Shadow of No Towers is an adult graphic novel board book. Then, for adult fiction, we have The Writing on the Wall, The Emperor's Children, and The Good Life. Then, as either sometimes cataloged as adult fiction, sometimes as young adult, um, largely considered more towards the young adult side, is Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, which has also been adapted to a movie. It has been 20 years since September 2011th, when nearly 3,000 died in the World Trade Centers in New York City, and 10,000, almost 10,000 more, were treated for injuries the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., and then Flight 93 in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. There are many historic moments surrounding this tragedy and the loss of life which occurred. And these moments provide some context for the books as they're referenced, um, mentioned, have pictures, interviews. But none of them really get the magnitude of what happened across, and the longer we go from the event, the often it's harder for us to remember exactly what it was like and what all transpired. For instance, in the history of the FAA, September 11th and in the days that followed, it was the largest and longest historical um, closure of all U.S. airspace for air travel. Only military planes over certain major cities were allowed to fly for the first couple of days. And for the first time in U.S. history, the Skatana Emergency Plan was invoked. New York City had the largest boat lift since World War II, as 800 boats answered the Coast Guard's call to help nearly half a million people get out of lower Manhattan. These were people who couldn't get north of the World Trade Center's area due to closures so that emergency vehicles could get in and park, and also because of debris that had fallen. And there was, you know, the heavy dust to smoke, um, you know, all the debris that was following, uh, falling out of the sky trying to get out of that, so heading south. They had to head down towards basically Battery Park at the tip of Manhattan and were ferried out to places like Ellis Island, Staten Island, and others over to the Bronx for some of them. Um, over the next nine hours, half a million people, uh, men, women, and in children, sometimes children without parents because they were just getting out of school or daycares and being pushed out as fast as they could get them out. In comparison, uh, of course, for recent uh, historical anniversaries and movies that you may be familiar with, 330,000 men were rescued from Dunkirk over nine days. The largest restructuring of the U.S. government in contemporary U.S. history um, created after this the Department of Homeland Security, the USA Patriot Act, and TSA Security, and the war in Afghanistan started within a few months. 
start us off, we're going to look at, and they did the kind of, it's an unusual um, occurrence. It's kind of unique. Uh, not very many of these are made. It's an adult graphic novel, but it's not just in paper form. It is in a kind of board book, those thick pages. So there's not very many pages. Um, it's available in NC Cardinal. There's only 14 copies, though. It's a very large, oversized work. Because basically it is like a full-size newspaper spread turned sideways so that it can be folded, you know, made into those pages. It's written by Art Spiegelman and was published in 2004. Spiegelman is known for his kind of underground comics, popular cultural references, and kind of using comics in a new uh, way, in a new push, you know, beyond what stereotypically may be considered. Um, he won the Pulitzer Prize in 1992 for Moss. Um, about the Holocaust, and the Eisner Award and the Eisner Award Hall of Fame, a Guggenheim Fellowship, and in 2005 was listed as among the top 100 most influential people by Time Magazine. He also uh, made, um, you know, published quite a bit about the Garbage Pail Kids, which was a parody of the 1980s Cabbage Patch Kids. He worked for the New Yorker for a time, but left shortly after September 11th because they were heading more towards uh, short-form articles, and he wanted to do kind of serialized, long-form works, of which his first one to be published and produced was In the Shadow of Two Towers. It, the themes of this work is kind of to analyze PTSD, paranoia, distrust of news, increasing political divide, all that came in the immediate and kind of even short-term and some of that longer-term um, impact from September 11th, particularly for people like him, who lived at Lower Manhattan, worked, kids went to school down there, so they were definitely seen, living, and a part of uh, that area. It's kind of his one-man effort to remember his personal experiences at Ground Zero, understand and evaluate his changing mental and historical understanding of September 11th in those coming two to three to four years. It can be read very quickly. It's only a few pages. Um, it's only like the six or seven that got published, the serialized um, kind of comics. He also has um, at the end something kind of unique and helpful is some early 20th century newspaper strips that were clearly inspiration for his work. He has those published at the end so you can kind of compare. You have to flip the pages sideways, you know, open it uh, long ways to be able to read it. And sometimes you even have to keep rotating the book to be able to read the text that he put at all different angles. But it is interesting what he was able to accomplish and how this got published. It's unique to find something like that, particularly if you're teaching a class on this or on uh, media forms. It would be interesting to bring in as an example. But those themes that he addresses are addressed frequently throughout all of these books. We'll look at the other three nonfiction ones uh, next. We have Jim Defeats the Day the World Came to Town, 9-11 in Gander, Newfoundland. This was published in 2002, very shortly after the events. 25 copies are available in NC Cardinal, so you can find one fairly easy. It won the 2003 Christopher Award for its ability to affirm the highest values of the human spirit. Jim DeFeed is an award-winning journalist in Florida who's worked for quite a few newspapers and currently works for CBS News 4, producing long-form investigative reports which have won five regional Emmys. 
This book overall is a non-American perspective getting mixed in with the American, um, you know, impacts, the international impacts of when the historic closure of U.S. airspace occurred. It's kind of like from those first five to seven days uh, during and after as everything shut down, people were trying to process it, families were trying to handle you know, their grief or their shock or what do we do or how do you get back to the United States or where's our plane going to take us? How long are we going to be here? Sort of the unknowns. Also with though a very strong sentiment of today, we are all Americans and how very heartwarming, joyous, and even of course will make you cry at times. A kind of very inspirational book. It's probably the most inspirational of any of the ones on this list. Not the most emotional, but certainly, uh, one of the most, you know, inspirational and heartwarming ones. Uh, Homer Hickman, the author of October Sky, which was made into a great movie and also is a good book, uh, gave this a rave review, so it kind of knows where you're heading. Let's see. Um, in 9-11, when airspace was shut down at 9.45 a.m. by the FAA, every one of the 4,546 private civilian planes had to land immediately at the nearest available. They couldn't like continue and then stop at their designated um, endpoint. They had to find the nearest available airport. For some of them, for quite a few, that meant they were already close enough and the only place they could fit was their um, you know, designated uh, destination. But for quite a few, it was just landing wherever they could find one. Um, and of course, there's even more 400 international flights that had been in the process of coming towards the U.S., most of them across the Europe, from Europe across the Atlantic. Um, so more than 250 of those were diverted to Canadian airports. Some of them weren't past the point of no return, and they could actually turn around and make it back to Europe. 38 of those 250 landed in Gander, Newfoundland. Um, it's about one and a half hours ahead of Eastern Standard Time. It's kind of like in the time zone all its own, the last little strip sticking out before you head all the way over towards Greenland, Iceland, and then get to the UK. With 38 plans landing in Newfoundland, that puts 6,595 passengers into a town and region with a population barely making 10,000. As the author states, and it's kind of the best description I could find, for the better part of a week, nearly every man, woman, and child in Gander and in the several like half dozen surrounding smaller towns stopped what they were doing so they could help. They placed their lives on hold for a group of strangers and asked nothing in return. They affirmed the basic goodness of man at a time when it was easy to doubt such humanity still existed. If the terrorists had hoped that their attacks would reveal the weakness in Western society, the events in Gander, Newfoundland proved its strength. The next one to look at is Lawrence Wright's The Looming Tower, Al-Qaeda and the Road to 9-11. This was published in 2006. This one is available here on our shelf, but there's many more copies in NC Cardinal, along with other formats such as the DVD that was made out of it, sort of the documentary, large print, and even audiobooks as well. It's the winner of the Pulitzer Prize, the Helen Bernstein Book Award for Excellence in Journalism, the Lionel Gelber Prize, the Los Angeles, Better, Los Angeles Times Book Prize, the Arthur Ross Book Award finalist, and it was on more than 25 Best Books of the Year lists. Lawrence Wright is another journalist who's written quite a bit for The New Yorker and has published over 10 other nonfiction books or fiction, um, such as Going Clear, Scientology, Hollywood, and the Prison of Belief, which was published in 2013, 
that was also shortlisted for several awards and turned into an HBO documentary that won the 2015 Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Documentary or Nonfiction Special. His most recent nonfiction came out um, in 2021 called The Plague Year, America in the Time of COVID. And his first fiction novel in 20 years came out last year in 2020, and it was a medical thriller called The End of October, a novel. And that is about a mysterious virus that appears. So you can see where COVID has influenced his recent writing. He also wrote uh, the story, with, which was adapted to a screenplay by two other people, for the movie called The Siege in 1998. This book, Lawrence Wright's book, is more of the backstory to September 11th events. Um, it's the only one we're kind of reading that's the backstory. The rest of them are day of or, you know, aftermath impact. Um, it's 540 pages, so it's one of the longer books we have. Uh, only 420 of those are for narrative. It's a very compelling and riveting and informative narrative, um, kind of one would expect given all these awards and praise it's gotten. It even referenced the other book that we're going to be looking at later called The Only Plane in the Sky. I would highly recommend this book. I won't get into all the details it covers, but it is well written and well worth the effort and praise that it's given. It includes several useful features, such as a map of the Middle East and a list of principal characters at the end of the book, which helps take up quite a bit of those pages that I mentioned. And it kind of helps you also keep up with who is being discussed. One of the problems that was uh, mentioned for some of the other books that get large but don't have any um, glossaries or helpful lists. So that's a very good book. I would recommend that to anyone. Garrett M. Graff's The Only Plane in the Sky, An Oral History of 9-11, published in 2019. There are 64 copies of this um, in NC Cardinal, including locally in Northwestern Regional, so you can get it fairly quickly if you request it. There's also large print and audiobook versions. It is a New York Times bestseller, an Audi Audiobook of the Year Award winner, and an Audi Award for Multivoice Performance winner, and is a Goodreads Choice Award for Best History and Biography category. Graf is another journalist who's worked for quite a few magazines. And this book is a minute-by-minute -minute progress of events from more than 500 people who lived through the events of September 11th. They're from all over. There's uh, interviews and snippets from people from New York City, Washington, D.C., Air Force One, Flight 93, International Space Station, firefighters, all sorts of people. Friends, witnesses, first responders, government officials, journalists, family members. Never before published transcripts, declassified documents, original interviews, and oral histories from various museums and libraries were pulled together to make this. Useful features include um, kind of there's bold font delineating a person's name, their title, company, or wherever they work, government role, and their location if perhaps, you know, they're in Tower 1, Tower 2, um, you know, maybe they're in somewhere else. That's included every time they speak, so you don't have to try and remember through the book. The problem is there's no glossary at the end fully summarizing these characters. Uh, new chapters, and every time a person's introduced, not every time they're mentioned, but every first introduction, um, they get this italicized sort of basic brief explanation of who they are and what is going on, you know, with them and where they're at. There's no elaborate background or major, you know, introductory essay. Um, there's no fancy page colorings or fancy little designs between spacings of persons and stories. Photos are all collected into two sets in the book, um, so those don't even mix in. Uh, you have to go look at them separately. There are very detailed and helpful maps of Ground Zero, 
the various floors of the World Trade Centers, who was there, which businesses, along with the Pentagon and its various rings, so you can see and follow along with the narrative and the description. So the format, you know, this may sound boring, uh, clips of, you know, interviews or transcripts, oh, this is going to be, you know, terrible read, or, you know, very confusing because it's just going to be, you know, snippets instead of one person's entire life story in a book. But actually, it's a very vivid, emotional, highly important work on uh, September 11th. It sucked, sucked me right in. It gives you a broad overview of what happened. You're not having to read a narrative, and instead you're getting to see what these people went through. Uh, so I highly recommend it. It sounds like it might be boring, but it's not. Um, it's very well done. Just enough to kind of help you get in and see this major overview of what happened that day. And of course, if there's any of these particular areas, like the planes, the president, the FAA, firefighters, first responders, Pentagon, anything in particular you want to dive into more after reading this, there's lots of books that have been published on those. So let's move on to the last category of adult fiction. Um, we have kind of, you would think maybe fiction for this, particularly given the fact it's more recent history. It is, it does seem to be harder for authors to sometimes get into it and kind of fully present and capture the sort of indescribable feeling and impact that this has had. Um, and it may seem a frivolous or kind of insensitive way to approach the topic, given how much nonfiction and biography has been written. But fiction is kind of a really helpful way of weaving the sort of social, emotional, and human motives and experiences into that historical reality framework that we are familiar with, such as September 11th or anything else, World War II, World War I. But it makes it kind of more compelling. It makes... Uh, you know, our human drive to understand and experience and find meaning and sense of things, it kind of helps us dive into that more than maybe a nonfiction would. Um, so these are actually rather helpful. It just seems to be most of the fiction I could find um, was kind of tending towards the sort of literary fiction or you know, psychological, you know, sort of person's mindset because they are trying to deal with such a traumatic um, recent occurrence. The first one we'll look at is Lynn Sharon Schwartz's The Writing on the Wall. This was published in 2005. It's available in the local system. There's only seven copies available in total, though, in NC Cardinal. So depending on how popular this may be at any given time, it may be harder to find it. I had no problem getting it, though. It won New York Magazine's 2005 Best Literary Fiction Award. She's written quite a few books of fiction, nonfiction, translation, and poetry, and you can tell that in the way she writes this. This was a New York City uh, librarian's perspective. Kind of the day of is very brief, and then it kind of shifts to the days and months afterwards, you know, the impact of the tragedy and how people coped with it, what they helped with, how it impacted their lives. This isn't your usual sort of chiclet, inspirational, happily ever after ending, or feel-good novel. Um, for example, there is swearing and sexual references in the text, but rather in a trend that I found in all the fiction I'm reviewing is very, uh, there's this sense of melancholy, darkness, as it's trying to get a grapple on this topic. This is not a thriller or a suspense or psychological. This novel in particular was squarely in the literary fiction, uh, genre. It's handling the long-term impacts of trauma and emotion when even more trauma is piled on top. 
It deals with a woman named Renata and her twin sister and her dad and her niece and her mom and her boyfriend and the uncertainty and past trauma that Renata has been through. And then when September 11th hits and Renata starts finding these children, like we mentioned at the start, you know, children were, you know, everyone's running everywhere. She finds these two children and through them and having to tend to them, starts learning to deal with past losses and blame. Of the ones that I uh, looked at, this was my kind of least favorite. It seemed to be a bit more forced, a bit more confusing at times, where she, the author was trying to mesh clearly her own personal interests and abilities with translation and other languages, along with, you know, September 11th, but then trying to bring it down to a fictional character's level so we could kind of get into the experience. These kind of random personality quirks and tidbits that you read in the novel, it made it a little harder to get into and follow along. But the next couple were better. The next one was better than Schwartz's Claire Massad's The Emperor's Children. Um, it was, it's from local system as well. Um, it's available, 48 copies are available in NC Cardinal. There's also other formats such as large print and audiobook available. Um, it, New York Times named it one of the 10 best books of 2006 and it won the 2007 Massachusetts Book Award for Fiction and was long listed for the Man Booker Prize. The author tends towards sort of a literary intelligence or sweeping social relevance in all of her novels, and you can see that again in this one. This is an aftermath of September 11th on five particular perspectives among sort of this hobnobbing, uh, glitterati, or attempting to be glitterati or remain glitterati, um, upper-level echelons of New York City's social scene. Danielle Minkoff, a television producer, Marina Thwaite, an it girl, Julius Clark, a cash-strapped freelance critic, along with three other people that are introduced to the story as main as key characters helping those, um, all really keep twisting and turning in the pre- and post-months of 2001. The narrative does begin in March 2001. And so they have their own personal traumas and decisions and unexpected tragedies that impact them each individually, but then, of course, timing in with that is September 11th layering on top. So once again, we're dealing with a sort of personal choices, personal impacts, trauma, um, aftermath of September 11th, a bit of dark. Um, it's well written. You do get uh, sucked into the story and characters, keeps you engaged. Um, it's a look at entitlement and wealth. It shows how becoming comfortable can be ripped away in one moment and sometimes multiple moments layered. Each character has their own moment of loss. There is no happily ever after. It does make you kind of think and consider possibilities of what happens after the story ends. Supposedly it'll be adapted into a movie at some point, uh, starring Kira Knightley, Eric Bana, and Richard Gere, but that remains to be seen. The next book, uh, Jay McNearney's, uh, McNearney's The Good Life. There are 27 copies available in the system, including the local system and NWRL, large print and audiobook as well. This novel kind of probes the questions of what happens or should happen when life stops us in our tracks, such as September 11th, and our own choices. And of course, when those are overlaid, you know, does it accelerate or just further fissure things that have already happened? What if secrets and secret needs, long guarded steadfastly, are suddenly revealed? What is a good life. 
And is there such a thing as, you know, a perfect happily ever after, you know, good life? This is a sequel to his 1992 novel, Brightness Falls, and takes place before, during, and after the events of September 11th. It is certainly better than even the last two novels. Um, its writing, story, and character development were even more compelling. But there's still no happily ever after. That doesn't seem to be a common trend, at least with the novels I looked at. Uh, Karen Kingsbury's Beyond Tuesday. Maybe uh, that series would fit that better if you're looking more towards the inspirational novels. If this fits more into the psychological and a domestic fiction, as we're looking at uh, two or three families... For two in particular, but there's some other families mentioned, um, lives, the impacts of September 11th, and also decisions happening before and after those. And the last one we're going to look at is kind of maybe more towards young adult, but some places in the system do catalog it as adult fiction. There's 45 copies of it as adult fiction, um, 16 as young adult. There's also the DVD movie adaptation and then an audiobook version as well. This has won many awards, um, New York Public Library, a New York Times bestseller, an ALA Outstanding Book for the College Bound you know, Child, ALA Notable Books for Adults, illustration awards because it is very unique in its uh, format. And according to the ALA, kind of to fit the other thing happening this month, uh, it's one of the top 100 banned or challenged books between 2010 and 2019. This is a child's perspective. This is an aftermath, um, very quickly at the front, the event of September 11th dealt with. And then this is the aftermath as he works through coping with, revisiting grief, loss, mourning, broken families, and the long-term impacts of trauma. His grandparents had gone through the Dresden bombings, and he himself and his parents have gone through the September 11th bombings. And this is kind of describing the impact of all those traumas as they keep layering and uh, fracturing and impacting these families. It was adapted into the 2011 film. It has very unique font and images, um, particularly such, for example, there's images mixed throughout the book, gradually, of that famous image of the falling man from the World Trade Center towers. But at the very end of the book, they're relayered in opposite directions so that as you flip quickly, it makes him go in reverse as though he's going back up in the air. Um, and that fits the story as the child is trying to work his way through the grief and the trauma and then makes the decision and kind of works back towards a brighter place. There's a lot of font formatting changes. There's even print, printed handwritten circling of text in red, business cards, kind of difficult and unique typesetting and arrangement so you can see the child as he cuts and writes and works and makes snippets and collects and tries to work through clues as he works his way through the city because he thinks he has a key that'll give him some sort of insight or background into his father who died in September 11th. So I hope you this helps kind of get you some new things to think about or you maybe you want to request for the 20th anniversary of September 11th. Feel free to call or come by the library. So we can help you get one of these put on hold, or you can put one hold yourself with your PIN number and library card online. Um, all of them are recommended, but in particular, um, The Good Life by Jay McIrney, uh, The Looming Tower, The um, Day the World Came to Town, and even in some ways Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, because it'll be a different format, and you can also watch the movie with it as well, just to, you know, kind of get this sense 
of what this child is going through because it's unusual to have the child's perspective um, in a fictional novel. It's not as common as an adult. Hope you have a good week.